Today, it's official. Boris Johnson has resigned as the British Prime Minister. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. It, thank you, thank you. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. This announcement came after a week of government resignations that rocked the Conservative Party in the UK. And Bill Booth, the London bureau chief for The Post, he was watching all of this play out. I, I was surprised because I'm sort of the dumb American at this show. And I, I, I've always watched Boris now for the last few years. And I thought, this guy is so cunning. He's so smart. He's so relentless. He's so self-promoting. He's so sort of greedy for power that he'll find a way out of this. He's as slippery as a bucket of eels. And he will, he will, he will get out of this one, as he has repeatedly in the past. But uh, I was wrong. The day unfolded. And the, the, it was just too much. His position was completely unsustainable. He he had to go. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, July 7th. Today, we're talking with Bill about the fall of Boris Johnson, what led up to his resignation, and what this will mean for the UK going forward. Then, later in the show, we'll hear about Brittany Griner. Today, she pleaded guilty in her trial in Russia. And we'll find out why that's not a surprise. So, Bill, tell me what happened on Thursday morning. On Thursday morning, Boris Johnson woke up and probably thought he would be prime minister for a while longer, but an avalanche of resignations poured onto his desk. Of 55, 60 resignations came in. He found his position untenable. The phones were ringing off the hook. People were telling him to resign. His best friends were telling him to resign, to step aside. Mm -hmm. And eventually, at midday, he did. He resigned from leadership of the Conservative Party and said that he would stay on as prime minister, kind of a temporary prime minister, until the fall or the end of the summer when his replacement uh, will be named by the Conservative Party and Boris will leave and the new person will come in. The herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. And our brilliant and Darwinian system will produce another leader equally committed to taking this country forward through tough times. The speech was short, but it was not sweet. Johnson said he accepted the will of his party and that he was going to resign. He was not emotional, but he did not apologize. He did not accept uh, any of the blame. He didn't say, well, this is half of my doing. He basically blamed the parliament and said that they got rid of him and that he thought he could have won more elections and fulfilled the people's mandate. But as he said, Them's the breaks. I know that there will be many people who are relieved and uh, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. 
So I know that Boris Johnson became prime minister in 2019. And Bill, you and I have had many conversations about Johnson, about his leadership style. Um, I think for a lot of people, he was kind of this goofy character in some ways, but also could be very popular. Um, some people even compared him to President Trump in terms of his kind of populist appeal. But but his big thing was this promise that he was going to finally get Brexit done. So since 2019, like, how has Johnson been doing? How have British people been viewing his performance as prime minister? Well, Boris Johnson's signal achievement was getting the British people to vote for Brexit and then getting Brexit done, achieving it. So Britain is no longer in the European Union, full stop. So success. The second question is, has Brexit been great? And Brexit has not been great. It hasn't been terrible, but uh, Brexit is an evolving thing. And um, Hmm. so what do the British people really think about Brexit now? Probably what they thought about it two years ago or five years ago, 54 and 50 against. So if he has, in fact, achieved this goal that he set out to achieve, which was just let's get this done, let's have Britain be separate from the rest of the EU, then what else has been going on? Why have people started to have a sense of dissatisfaction with Boris Johnson? Well, Boris's main problem is he's had one scandal after another. It's just been a string of Hmm. scandals. They've just been remarkable. Um, uh, Lots of scandals that would have buried a previous prime minister, Boris Johnson, has weathered Hmm. by bobbing and weaving and not telling the complete truth until the very last minute. And so I think uh, that's what did him in at the end. It wasn't it wasn't a policy fail. It wasn't some uh, money scandal. It was uh, his fellow lawmakers were sick and tired of Boris's misdirections and incomplete truths. Uh, they were just sick of it. Interesting. So, so let's unpack some of those scandals. Some of them I think I do know a little bit about as an American who only pays a little bit of attention to the UK. But Partygate is something that means something to me, right? Like that was a whole thing during COVID that apparently Boris Johnson threw a party during COVID and people understandably did not like that. Well, let's talk about this big story here in the UK. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson has dismissed renewed calls for his resignation after an internal report into lockdown parties at Downing Street criticised the culture and leadership inside 10 Downing Street. There's also the question of what went on in lockdown in the Prime Minister's private flat. Allegations of another gathering on the day of Boris Johnson's birthday. Yes, Partygate was a big thing here and it was a scandal that went on for months and months. There was a string of parties held at 10 Downing Street, mostly by his staff uh, and aides. Uh, Boris wasn't hosting all these parties, but Boris attended a few. And he was the first uh, prime minister to be fined for breaking the law while in office uh, for attending a party. Because this was during kind of peak lockdown when this no one peak, else was able to have a party. Just, you're, you're giving me nightmares. This was peak lockdown. The worst of the worst time when you couldn't attend, forget weddings, you couldn't really attend a funeral. You couldn't go visit your mm. grandmother in the hospital. And number 10 Downing Street was partying. They were bringing in booze by the suitcase and having karaoke parties. So Johnson at the beginning of this swore up and down that no laws were broken. He'd never heard of any laws being broken. What I could tell the a right honourable gentleman is that uh, is that all guidance was followed uh, completely during number 10. And then it turned out that a number of laws were broken and there were 126 fines issued by the Metropolitan Police to, to him and his staff. But firstly, I want to say sorry. And I'm sorry for the things we simply 
didn't get right, and also sorry for the way that this matter has been handled. I also want to talk about the Pincher scandal, which is one that I really don't know anything about. And that seems to be the the kind of more recent inciting event for a lot of this criticism against Johnson. Can you unpack what's happening here? Who is Pincher and what is the scandal about? I'm happy to do it. Uh, Warning to readers, this is a little PG-13. Chris Pincher was the deputy chief whip. A whip is somebody who keeps the party in line and makes sure that people vote the government's agenda, right? So Boris appointed him to this job. It's a high-level job. Even though he knew of past accusations against Chris Pincher for um, improprieties, sexual misconduct, and uh, other things like that. And this came to a head when Chris Pincher, just a week or two ago, resigned, saying that he had gotten extremely drunk at the Carlton Club. This is a Tory watering hole. Uh, it's sort of a hmm. Downton Abbey setting in the middle of central Lub- London. And and he got very drunk there, and apparently he groped a couple of gentlemen in that same club who, who didn't hmm. appreciate it. And so he got the sack, and then uh, Boris had to reveal that, oh, yeah, that's right. Years ago, someone mentioned to me that this fellow might be a problem. Apparently, he did know about these previous allegations, but at first he said, he and his staff said that he did not. Did you want to joke, though, pincher by name, pincher by nature? Well, what I can tell you is that uh, if I look at the background of this and why I regret it so much, is that uh, about three years ago, uh, there was a complaint made against uh, Chris Pincher in the Foreign Office. Uh, the complaint was, was uh, cleared up. He apologised. Uh, it was raised with me. Uh, in uh, Orally, there was a, I, was, I was briefed on what had had happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if I had my time again, I would think back on it and uh, recognize that uh, he wasn't going to learn. And uh, just to be clear, Pincher has denied at least some of these allegations. But as he pointed out, I mean, Johnson is someone who is not afraid of public shaming, if that makes sense. Um, and that he's often, you know, the, the the last person to listen to public calls for him to resign or to kind of apologize in a public way. So so what kind of turned things here? When you have these, these scandals um, lumped together, why now was this the thing that Johnson felt like he couldn't survive politically? Oh, well, that's very correct, what you just said. It almost sometimes seems like Johnson kind of, like in a weird way, enjoys public shaming because he keeps getting <laughs> into this kind of hot water. But um, on Monday, I bet you Boris Johnson thought he would survive this. But as the last few days have progressed, his senior ministers, like the head of finance, the head of health, all were resigning and writing these very um, tough uh, letters, uh, you know, uh, questioning Johnson's leadership, but really it's basic honesty and decency. And if those were a few resignations, I think I think old Boris would have thought that he would muddle on and survive. But there was just such a wave of them. He just couldn't. The government, like today, became dysfunctional. You had nobody to run mm-hmm. any of these government departments. 
Because in terms of numbers, I mean, we're talking about at least 59 members of Johnson's yeah. ministers. Fifty, Exactly, exactly. 59 members. But also, like, it was like, imagine in Washington, D.C., like your Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, and name two or three more, just picked up and left tomorrow. Hmm. I mean, the, the, the government just hits gridlock, and it's a complete show of non-confidence in the, in the prime minister. So— what is going to happen to the government? I mean, like, what what happens now that all these people are gone? I, I think the short answer is the government will be run at least for a time by incompetence. Um, that, <laughs> that, that doesn't sounds, sound good. That, that sounds harsh. But I mean, it'll be people, even intelligent people who are just brand new to the job and they know they're on the job for a few months. So if you wanted to get a good education policy through parliament or even just get some simple things done, who's going to do that for you now? Some replacement minister who's in there for a few weeks uh, who barely has you know time to find his desk and, and find out who's going to pick him up in the morning and drive him home at night. I mean, it won't be a high-flying, uh, super productive uh, government uh, in the coming months, particularly because all the parties are at each other's throats internally and externally. So now that Johnson has resigned, what happens next? Because he's not actually out of office yet, right? No, he's not out of office. And this is very important. He is going to stay until his replacement is named. Now, some of his his enemies suggest that Johnson will use this time in almost kind of a Trumpian fashion to cling to power. I don't necessarily think that will happen, but people have certainly raised it. But the idea is he will be kind of caretaker prime minister for the next few months. He'll give mm. a lot of speeches. He'll try to resurrect um, his reputation, and then he'll go see the queen in September, resign, and then his replacement will go into 10 Downing. And how does that replacement happen? Like, what's the process for the next person to be chosen? All kinds of colorful British things happen. Um, uh, first, first they go into Parliament, and and every people submit their names. I want to be the new leader of the country. Then the Parliament winnows them down uh, through these secret votes to two people. These two people then go on the hustings. So they go out to golf clubs and and gardening clubs and bowling clubs, and they meet with fellow Tories, fellow Conservatives, and they make their case. Usually, there's a couple of. Debates too. And then the the party members, not the public, not William Booth, taxpayer in Britain, but the just the Tory party members, Conservative Party members, they vote for the new um, prime minister. And this could be a hundred thousand people, two hundred thousand people. It's not a full democratic vote. Do we know who the front runners are for potential replacements for Johnson? We know a lot of we know we know a number of graspers and we know a few <laughs> names. Um, we'll know like in the next day or two who they might be. Several of the people who got the old heave ho from Boris or or quit uh, might be at the top of the list. His health secretary, uh, his finance minister, former um, uh, foreign minister uh, Jeremy Hunt might run again. His current foreign minister uh, Liz Truss might run. So you know these are like uh, there's probably five or six um, reasonable choices that that wouldn't be laughed off stage. I mean, that would they could make a reasonable case uh, to their fellow uh, members of parliament that they should be the one. Mm-hmm. I guess we will see what happens. Um, I- I'm curious, Bill, 
What do you think the stakes are here for regular people in the UK? I mean, beyond the, like, cringiness of watching uh, these scandals play out on TV and and people's personal feelings about um, Boris Johnson and and what he's like as a leader, I mean, what could this change or or how will this affect regular life in the UK? Well, I I think this is a huge deal uh, for the British people. Uh, This prime minister came in with a huge mandate and a giant majority, and now he's out on his bum. Um, Britain right now is facing 9% inflation. Gas prices and energy Mm. prices are through the roof. Um, This country is uh, struggling. It's struggling post-Brexit. And when you look at those high inflation rates, yes, we're all experiencing them, but how much are those inflation rates in the U.S. actually linked to Brexit? Like, this is what happened as a result of Johnson's uh, pushing Brexit through. Yes. I I mean, there's a good case to be made that Brexit has certainly um, reduced Britain's uh, gross domestic product and probably contributed to Britain's sky-high inflation today. Uh, Brexit was supposed to open up Britain to the world and trade. That hasn't happened, at least hasn't happened yet. Um, So one of the legacies of Johnson, of course, will be how Brexit plays out over the next years and years. But Britain right now is facing lots of challenges, and it's I, I think people are disgusted. They're looking at sort of Westminster as a bit of a sort of an appalling show. I don't want to use an old metaphor of a clown car, but they're just looking at it as sort of ridiculous. While all these people are fighting over who will be next and Boris hanging on, um, the press obsessed with this. I mean, it's very expensive to go to the grocery store and buy dinner. Hmm. And um, <laughs> that, that weighs up more on people's mind probably than than how Boris is feeling today. Bill, thank you so much for all of this. Anytime. Happy to do it. Bill Booth is the London bureau chief for The Post. The story was produced by Charlotte Freeland. Being prime minister is an education in itself. I've traveled to every part of the United Kingdom, And in addition to the beauty of our natural world, I found so many people possessed of such boundless British originality and so willing to tackle old problems in new ways that I know that even if things can sometimes seem dark now, our future together is golden. Thank you all very much. Thank you. After the break, we'll talk about WNBA star Brittany Griner and the political stakes of her detention. We'll be right back. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of Radio Atlantic. Wait, really? Every week, we talk to Atlantic writers or other creative thinkers, and we take one idea and we road test it. Maybe what I'm asking is, is the problem them or us? Sometimes I change my mind about things. That's such a good point. I never thought of that. Maybe you will, too. Or at least you might see something differently. Ooh, that's fabulous. Radio Atlantic. New episodes every Thursday. 
On Thursday, Brittany Griner pleaded guilty to a drug charge in Russia. It was the second day of her trial, and she was required to enter a plea. She pleaded guilty, but said it happened inadvertently, that she did not mean to bring the drugs into the country. Dave Scheinin is a sports reporter for The Post. He's been following the trial. And like so many of us, he has been wondering, what is going to happen to Griner, especially after this guilty plea? Experts who I've spoken to prior to this plea fully expected her to plead guilty. Um, I think there's two reasons why. One has to do with the legal case and one with the political case. In terms of the legal case, it was pretty much a given anyway that she was going to be found guilty and convicted because approximately 99% of Russian criminal trials end in conviction. So with that in mind, it was probably a better legal strategy for her to plead guilty and ask the court for mercy than to fight the charge and lose anyway. And in terms of her political case, if this were to end in a prisoner swap, the Russians would more than likely require a guilty plea in order for that to happen. So let's back up for one minute here. Tell us a little bit more about Brittany Griner and why she's being held in Russia in the first place. Brittany Griner is one of the premier uh, women's basketball players in the world, a perennial MVP candidate in the WNBA, an eight-time All-Star for the Phoenix Mercury, a two-time Olympic gold medalist, a former NCAA champion at Baylor. Uh, Brittany Griner had a breakout season. We expected that after having uh, seen her at Baylor, uh, and she was tearing it up in the playoffs before going down with You can't take your eyes off of her when she's on the court. She rose to prominence as one of the only female uh, basketball players who dunked regularly. So, you know, she's six foot eight, but also has moves and skills and handles and uh, can shoot. She really is a consummate player. She's one of the dominant forces in the league, and she's an absolute joy to watch play. Growing up, I always knew I wanted to do something big in the world, have, uh, you know, a place. And I never knew sports uh, was going to be my outlet. And she is detained in Russia because she was allegedly caught bringing vape cartridges into the country containing cannabis oil when she was um, deplaning outside of Moscow at the airport to join her Russian team for which she plays during the WNBA offseason. She's been playing over there for a number of years, is very popular overseas and, and in Russia, and is um, clearly you know one of the dominant players in that league as well as the WNBA. And now we're um, roughly 140 days into her imprisonment in Russia. And I think the thing that's important to understand here is that, yes, she was arrested on essentially drug charges, but that there are a lot of questions here about whether she's being held really as a political prisoner, that she's being held hostage. The Biden administration considers Griner to be a wrongful detainee, which um, is more than just a descriptor. It's a legal designation, an official designation. That means the administration 
feels she was set up and that this is a hostage situation, a political imprisonment more than a legal case. So I think regardless of her plea in court, the Biden administration believes this was wrong from the start and was more of a political situation than a legal one. What has the Biden administration been doing to get her out? And like, what is the like, why would she be a political prisoner here? What, what is Russia's game in all of this or, or what could it be? Well, she's clearly a very prominent American and she's a prominent American at a time when U.S.-Russia relations are um, is probably the worst relations between the countries clearly since the Cold War. So there is political motivation, I suppose, for Russia to capture a prominent American during a time of terrible relations between the countries. So she has immense value to them. The, the Biden administration has not said much tangible about what they're attempting to do, trying to do to get her free. There is much speculation that this could end up or will end up in a prisoner swap, such as the one, you know, we saw with Trevor Reed, the former Marine who was released in a prisoner swap in April. He had been in Russian custody for several years. And do we know who Russia would want to swap her with? Yeah, the Russian media, the state media, has speculated at length about a prisoner swap involving Griner for Victor Bout. And Victor Bout is a notorious arms dealer who is serving a 25-year sentence right now after being convicted in U.S. court of supplying arms to terrorist organizations and uh, killing Americans. So you can imagine that that type of prisoner swap would be sort of unpalatable for the U.S. to swap Brittany Griner, who's accused of bringing drugs with her in her luggage, for a criminal who was convicted of killing Americans. So you could imagine the U.S. Um, resistance to doing that. Well, you say unpalatable or that it, they would have resistance, but but they're also facing a lot of pressure from people who, up until this point, a lot of Americans who believe that that the U.S. government has not really put all their force behind trying to get Griner free or that they are not taking the situation seriously enough. So, so I do wonder, like, what is your sense of whether this could ultimately be a swap that they might be willing to make, even if it's painful for them? Right. I mean, you can imagine this is it's a, it's a tough spot for the Biden administration to be in. There is immense pressure on them from Griner's supporters, her family. I think the decision for her to feel the need to directly reach out to President Biden is because of the failed attempts that we have had as a family. You know, she's there and she knows that we are doing everything that we can in our own strength to, you know, ask to meet with the president and to, you know, request that, you know, they do everything they can to get her home. And it kills me every time that, you know, when I have to write her and she's asking, you know, have you met with him yet? And, you know, I have to say no. This week, Sherelle Griner went on CBS Mornings and was very outspoken and very emotional about what she's been through, what Brittany has gone through, and her frustrations at the pace of um, the Biden administration's efforts, which she clearly feels has been slow and lacking in urgency. They are not moving. They are not doing anything. And so um, my wife is struggling and, and we have to help her. 
The WNBA is a powerful organization and it's closely aligned with the NBA. And so you've had NBA players and WNBA players and politicians and prominent figures across American society calling for her release and calling for the Biden administration to do everything it can to get her release. And everything it can You know, that probably means this very unpalatable prisoner swap. So the question then becomes, will the Biden administration go that far and make that step to make it happen? I believe that they could gain her release through this prisoner swap at any time if if they wanted to, based on what the Russian state media has written and said about Victor Bout. It sounds clear to me that the Kremlin is looking for that prisoner swap to happen. And also, when you think about the prospect of Greiner potentially being in Russian prison for many years to come, obviously that would be a huge tragedy to her for the people who know her and are around her. But I think more generally would be a big tragedy for this country and for what women's basketball means. I mean, I'm thinking about how many people have been able to see her play, how many people would yet to be able to see her play, and what it would mean if essentially her career was over because of what's happened in Russia. That's correct. Any prisoner who's held wrongly, it's a tragedy of the loss of those years that that they never get back. But in the case of an athlete in her prime, or at least the back half of her prime or the back end of her prime, she's 31 years old. It's a double tragedy in that those years that she can't get back are the only years where she has a basketball career. And if she's held for 10 years, it's very unlikely that she plays basketball at age 41 and and that her career would end in this manner. And that would be doubly tragic for sure. Dave, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much for having me. Dave Scheinin is a sports reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Arjun Singh. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was edited by Rena Flores. It was mixed by Renny Svernovsky and Sean Carter. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.